1: Hello. Welcome to IntelliCast. My name is Brian Lamar. Joining me as always is Brian Peterson. Hello, sir.
0: Hello. How are you?
1: Oh, I'm good. How are you? I am doing good. Good weekend. Nice
0: warm fall de- fall weekend here in Ohio.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was out in the sun. I don't know how many hours this weekend, but it was a lot. A lot of hours.
0: I know you were at Oktoberfest. We went, we hit up the first fall festival of the year. Yeah. So I, I, it was a nice weekend to be outside.
1: Went to my first college football game in a while, went to Oktoberfest. I um, had a good weekend. Um, we are here to talk about Insights Marketing Day. We are, which is the next conference we'll be attending October 6th in Chicago. Are you and Emma, we should probably have Emma on here to talk about this. Are you and Emma excited?
0: We are. Um, this will be Emma's first conference. Yeah. Um, I was there last year. This is our fourth time being involved with it. We are the podcast sponsor again. Um, been attending and or presenting at Insights Marketing Day since 2019.
1: So, wow. Yeah. Okay. And as part of that, we've interviewed a couple of people. Um, we interviewed David Paul. David Paul is the founder of Dallas Smith and Lillian Labs. Interesting guy. Uh, his session's about stupendous storytelling for marvelous messaging. Um, really cool stuff. Nice guy, smart guy. I think I would love to attend this. I'm jealous that you guys are attending. But um, yeah, he's the first. Is that the first segment? Yes, that is
0: our first segment today.
1: Okay. Um, his session is, uh, Thursday, I guess they're all on Thursday, 30 minutes each. Yeah. And let's see. Second one is Susan Griffin and, um, Susan Griffin is the principal of Griffin and Skeggs collaborative, collaborative. Yes. I didn't attend this interview. You interviewed this one solo.
0: No. Yeah. You had a scheduling conflict last minute. So I did this yeah. interview solo and this was a good interview. Um, <laughs> it's rare that I get to talk to another marketer. Just yeah, one on one, So yeah,
1: this worked out really well for us, I think that you, I'd just be in the way anyway, in that interview. So I think so much better than if I had joined. But she is speaking about when building your brand think like a builder, um, which sounds pretty interesting. Um, attempts by marketing research companies to create effective marketing programs, skip the essential foundation for supporting your brand, a differentiated positioning. Yeah, we don't think like that as researchers and so we need mm-hmm. we need to be better at that and yep. so yeah i'm excited we'd love feedback on this too um, um let us know you can email us at intellicast at emi-rs.com you can follow us on twitter emi underscore research or intellicast one and i i beg everybody to text us every week and nobody ever texts us now's your chance we'll read your text on the air 513-401-5463
0: anything I, else before I, we get I, the interviews no just for the text messages i wait with bated breath for one to come in i check it daily and nothing
1: we had we used to get a bunch i know we had one from melanie Courtwright once and um some a lot of our listeners so we love it uh, we love feedback good or bad we'll improve um so i guess we'll get right into it david paul will be the first interview and then susan griffin and the second one and again insights marketing day is in chicago october 6th and hopefully brian and M will see you there Joining us now, excited to have uh, David Paul. He is the founder of Dial Smith and Lillian Labs. Hey, David, how are you, sir?
2: I'm good. How are you doing?
1: Oh, I'm doing great. I was just reading about your session um, at Insights Marketing Day. By the way, that's Thursday, October 6th, 1125 to 1155 a.m. Central Time. Very specific, but it's entitled Stupendous Storytelling for Marvelous Messaging. I love the title, first off.
2: Well, thanks. I figure in a pre that's probably a pre lunchtime slot. So I better give people <laughs> a reason to stick around and stay awake, right?
1: Exactly. Uh, before we kind of get into your session, um, which sounds awesome, maybe we talk a little bit about your background, um, how you got into marketing research. We'd love to hear how people kind of got into, into research.
2: Yeah, um, I, I fell into it. Um, I don't know how often you hear that story, but Uh I'm not a a researcher by trade. My background is in um, technology, sales, and marketing is how I came up in my career. And um, back in the very early 2000s, a large market research company was called Market Strategies. At the time, it's Escalant now. Um, They had a small division in the company that made those perception analyzer dials that you see on CNN and Fox News during the presidential debates, and they needed somebody to run that division. So they brought me in more for my technology, sales marketing operations background to help run that business. And I ran that all through the 2000s. And then in 2009, uh, acquired that business from them and spun it off into dial Smith and we've been dial Smith now since 2009. Uh, we have the same core team that was there when I came on board in 2001. Oh, wow. So incredible tenure. It's an amazing team. I couldn't be more fortunate, uh, in that regard. And then, um, a number of years ago, we decided that we wanted to be able to be a little bit more well rounded and not just have to stop at the data collection piece. And we also really wanted to start exploring storytelling and strategic messaging more. And that's where Lillian labs came into play. So that's more of our full service consultancy, definitely with more of a qualitative slant to it, but also benefiting from the tools and technologies that, that dial Smith makes the in-person dials, but also online dials for, for surveys and online focus groups, and then uh, strategic messaging and storytelling through Lillian.
1: Well, first off, I'm, I'm always been, I think most people are fascinated by the, uh, you mentioned a CNN, the, the dials. And Mm -hmm. and, uh, I think it's one of the few areas in marketing research that, um, those that aren't in our industry kind of see and get. And like my example is I've been in this industry for 25 years and my mom and dad are very smart people. They don't have any idea what I do. It's kind of always been hard to explain what we do in marketing research. We've never done a good job of branding it, except in that area. It's so apparent. I mean, all you need to know is if it goes up or down when somebody says something, right? I've always been fascinated by that. You've been doing it for how long?
2: Uh, I've been doing it since 2001. Wow. Um, The the dial testing technology was actually first developed back in the mid 80s. It was during uh, one of Ronald Reagan's uh, election cycles where it was first used for political ad testing was the origin of the dials. And uh, it's evolved ever since then. But yeah, I mean, like you, it's the easiest way for me to explain to people what I do. They give me that. I start to talk about it and they give me that sideways look and I say, you right. ever see those dials, those lines on CNN? Oh yeah. All the time. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, I'm also a huge West wing fan and I completely geeked out on the episode of West wing when they also had the, uh, had the dial lines, um, during one of the debates for, uh, their election cycle on the show too.
1: Yeah. And I'm, you're using that for much more than, uh, measuring, um, Reaction to debates and speeches, yeah. right? You're probably doing a lot of other use cases for that, right?
2: Yeah, I mean that's the public facing that people see. We do a ton of litigation research, so it's being used for testing of opening closing statements of attorneys, witness testimony. Uh, I mean, you know, a, a mock jury is is really just a focus group if you think about it. Uh, TV pilot testing we do every year. Um, you know, advertising research, and then we do a lot of testing of Uh, messages and presentations and how those messages and and speeches and presentations resonate with the target audience
1: no i'm so fascinated i could talk about that forever it's just so such cool stuff right
2: (laughs) well thanks me Um, too
1: (laughs) and then tell me more about the storytelling part the lillian labs part that's a little bit newer right
2: yeah it's a little bit newer Um, I've always been fascinated with the power of communication, and the and the power of effective messaging, but uh, it's elusive for a lot of people and what I really wanted to do is combine the idea of being able to create, create a narrative that can be spun into a story, but that can be done in a way that's going to resonate with people so. You know, there's a lot of talk these days, of course, about, you know, behavioral economics and cognitive biases. And there's a reason for all of that. It's all rooted in a in an area of psychology that, that whether people realize it or not, they're being exposed to and affected by every single day. And so a number of years ago, I got involved with an event out of Nashville, Tennessee, called the Story Conference. It's actually coming up. Um, Here, it's going to be a a couple of weeks before Insights Marketing Day, and I'll be out there. And I got involved with them, and we started doing some research experiments around crafting of effective stories and and what can make a a story more persuasive, more influential. And we started testing how different uh, using principles from different cognitive biases woven into those stories and messages could be more effective at influence and persuasion. And um, it really just evolved from there. And the more people who were exposed to it, the more became interested in it. So we decided to carve out a business that could really focus on that. And then that dovetails nicely with my DialSmith business, because the Lillian lab side will will often do the, mar- the, the market research and, and help create the personas and develop the stories and then The dial Smith team will come in and help test that with a representative audience. And then Lillian will refine and dial Smith will retest. (laughs) So, uh, it's nice to have everything under, under one roof.
1: I mean, it's, you have so much credibility. You have 20 years of experience of measuring quantitatively what works and does not work. And Mm -hmm. so that is, to me, seems like a natural next step. You've got all this experience of this resonates this doesn't, say it like this. Um, so that's great. A lot of people don't do that. They take what they've learned in their career and kind of expand a, an adjacent, maybe a little bit of adjacent, but um, that's really cool. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah, thank you. And I, I mean, I think, dial, I think um, storytelling is our expansion, but I really didn't want to go too far afield. I mean, again, I'm not a, I'm not a trained researcher. I don't want to pretend to be something that I'm not. Um, I'm, you know, being kind of classically trained in sales and having a lot of experience in it, I'm a natural communicator. So I really wanted to lean into that and then simply use the, the beauty for me of dial Smith is that all of our tools are strictly around data collection. And the only reason we're collecting those data is so that we can then know where to probe. So as we're testing a story or a narrative, and we're looking at the dial results And we see the line go up when someone says this or go down when someone says that. It's all then about the why. Why did you react that way? Why did you dial up? Why did you dial down? And because memory and recall are so flawed and asking people simply after the fact, so what did you think of that? Every single day, I ask people, what did you think of that? And they say, oh, it was great. I really liked it. I say, right. okay, well, now let's talk about this specific part where you dialed down. Oh, yeah, I didn't like that part so much. Okay, so why was that? So it's right. just classic aided recall. It's just a tool that you know, that allows people really semi-consciously to tell me what they're thinking in the moment. We don't do non-conscious data collection like neuro and and bio and those things. And uh, I think they have their place. But for me, I want to be able to ask people why they reacted the way they did. And in order for them to give me an answer to that, they have to have some conscious understanding that they did it in the first place. Not just that, uh, you know, their brain reacted a certain way. So what I love about this and why I've devoted, you know, so many years to it is because it is conscious, but it's it's so reactive. Um, I get the best of both worlds. I get that instant feedback, but I also have them cognitively aware of what they did so then they can tell me why they did it.
1: Well, that's awesome. You say you're not a classically trained researcher, but not many of us are. And um, you've got all this experience. And so I think you're selling yourself a little bit short. Um, you certainly um, know what you're doing. It,
2: and, it, it's on the job training. And there yeah. are so many people in this industry who I know are way more skilled and nuanced and smarter than me. Uh, I'm, I'm just happy to be
1: in here doing my part. <laughs> and, you know, you've done this in 45 countries. That's amazing as well.
2: We do. Yeah, we have clients all around the world uh, who benefit from uh, our dial testing tools. I mean, that's the core business. So uh, it's often around political research, there'll be an election happening in a certain country, they look to the US to see how we do it. And then they reach out. And, um, you know, SEO has been by far our number one lead generating tool, we put more energy into that. because. In this kind of B2B world, you know, when people, if, if somebody wants to, you know, Google, you know, um, you know, CNN focus group dials or something like that, I have to make sure that they find me. Um, And so we've been found around the world through, through that. And, and yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a really fun ride.
1: Awesome. Um, Let's get back to your session. Um, Stupendous storytelling for marvelous messaging. Um, you tell me about that. It looks interesting.
2: Yeah. So, uh, what I'm going to go through in this session is I'm, I'm going to go through a real world example of a B2B company so that everyone in the audience here can relate, uh, a B2B company that was having trouble differentiating themselves in a market where it could be considered that everybody offers the same service. And I know in the market research world, we struggle with that a lot. You know, what makes my firm notably different than another one? We use the same principles. We have the same training. So what's that special sauce that makes me different than somebody else? And um, so I, I have most of our work we can't talk about, but I happen to have this one client who, um, who's happy to let me use their example. And we did end-to-end work with them where uh, we really helped them understand their target market and create their sure. market personas. And then uh, we did qualitative research with that audience to really understand relative to the service that they offer, um, what is it that, the, that they're looking for? What's missing in the market? What do they think of the competitors? And while everyone who's gonna be in this audience certainly knows how to do their own research, we also know that market researchers are often the, the worst at taking our own advice nice. and doing it for ourselves. So that'll be one piece of it. And then we took everything we learned from that and we crafted some messaging, uh, comp- you know, positioning and competitive messaging using a storytelling framework that I've put together Uh, And then we tested that messaging, we dial tested it through one round, and then we refined it based on what we learned. And then we tested it again. And then we finalized it based on everything we learned. So it's really going to have everything from getting to know your audience to, of course, talking to them, which is necessary, and then crafting um, story based messaging that can then very easily be tested and refined.
1: Wow. That sounds awesome. Are you, you mentioned the story conference in Nashville, which I've Googled mm-hmm. and I'm fascinated by that as well. Are you yeah. giving something, a similar uh, discussion there?
2: Uh, yeah, this year I'm doing uh, a breakout there and okay. uh, I'll be, I'll be talking about something similar there. Uh, I've spoken there a number of years, about three years ago, we did an experiment. Um, it was kind of a classic um, behavioral economics experiment that just kind of blew the audience away because that's not an audience of researchers or even marketers. It's, a, right. it's an audience of creatives. But we did we kind of recreated this example where um, uh, we we tested different food items with research participants, and half the participants heard about those food items relative to the number of calories. And the other half heard about it relative to the amount of uh, physical activity you'd have to do to work it off. And we wanted to see how the perception changed. <laughs> so the example that it always starts with is one M&M. Um, one M&M has, I think, I think it's, I'm forgetting now, it might be 16, 18 calories, something like that. And of course, when asked, you know, do you think that this would be a, an okay food choice when you're watching what you eat? Everybody's like, yeah, I'll eat an M&M. It's not a big deal. And then when, when people are presented with the fact that you have to walk the length of a football field in order to walk off that one M&M, of course, the data goes in a completely different direction. And that's you know, so we have five examples like that and it just blows people's minds. And that's just simple reframing. But yeah. in storytelling, there is nothing. It's not The thing is, it's not complicated. I'm not a genius <laughs> by any means and I didn't make any of this up. But there is nothing more powerful than reframing um, a a story or a narrative in order to change people's perceptions. You don't have to be an expert. Um, You don't have to have a deep education. You just have to understand the very basics of how people go about processing information and and making decisions. And framing and reframing is is classic and and as simple as it gets if you understand it.
1: No, that's fascinating. Um, can you give us, our listeners, one or two quick tips? I don't know, you probably meant I'm going to do this. Um, <laughs> we'll be challenging you here. Yeah, what are the quick tips that you can improve maybe your storytelling or messaging or communication?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, number one is you have to understand from your audience's perspective, what is the real problem that you're solving? And that is almost never the initial superficial problem. So you ask someone, you know, what are your challenges related to XYZ? And they're going to say the, you know, the, the obvious thing that's right in front of their face. But at the end of the day, that's only the first layer of the onion. The real issue is five or six layers down. And that's where, as researchers, we keep asking why, 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 tell me more about that, tell me more about that, until we really get down to the root. And it's like, oh, okay, it's not that you need a CRM system, it's that you your sales team has been missing their quota for four quarters in a row, and you're having, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So um, not taking that superficial is incredibly important, because if you message for the superficial you're never going to actually solve the real problem. And then um, I would say really the next best tip is to just take a few hours and if you're not already familiarize yourself with the basics of principles behind behavioral economics and specifically around cognitive biases and the 10 or 12 that are most common Because if you can become well versed in those, and they can kind of become second nature, then not only will you use it in your messaging and your positioning, you'll use it in your everyday life. I mean, there's no better way to get your kid to do something you want them to do, than to just kind of hack their brain a little bit with how you communicate with them in a way that's going to resonate more rather than doing battle all the yeah. time and really that's a few hours of homework i think you know you don't have to read thinking fast and slow end to end um you really just have to familiarize yourself with the basic principles and if you do that and you focus on the real root core problem not the superficial one right there you're gonna step up your game tremendously
1: well i was gonna say even before you got to the second one that this has to be the um Trying to understand what the real problem is instead of what the initial, what you think it is, the perception of it. That has to be incredible for outside of business, it's probably better so than um, than what we do in our job, right? For you mentioned your child, a child, um, for your spouse or friends yeah. or even enemies, that's got to be an incredible uh, thing to do.
2: Yeah. And like I even look at it, um, you know i think i think uh people who sell cars i think car selling is such a fascinating field and if you think about i mean this you've heard things like this before you know somebody comes in to buy um, you know, they're going to buy a minivan and the question is what's going to make them buy yours versus another and if you approach it because they're coming in because they want a minivan, you're already putting yourself at a disadvantage, nobody, nobody wants a minivan they purely want what that minivan can deliver to them, and it's classic selling, you know benefits instead of features, but it's doing it on a much more primal level where, yeah. um, you know, you really get to, to the root of the pro- the pain that somebody has. And how do you address that pain? And then how do you paint for them kind of that, that view of the promised land? So, you know, I have this, this behavioral storytelling framework that, that starts with what's the real problem and then moves to what's at stake. If you don't solve the problem, what does the perfect outcome look like once you solve the problem? And then we get into the call to action, the heart of the story, and ultimately back it up with testimonials. Um, because everybody wants to feel like they're part of a group of people that are similar to them. You know, Seth Godin's classic quote from tribes, people like us do things like this. Nobody wants to be out on a limb. They want to feel that comfort of, oh, if I do this, I'm going to be around other people like me. Right. Um, and so that's kind of a framework that we use for for navigating through our, our story development.
1: Well, awesome. I am jealous that Brian gets to attend this and uh... Gets to listen to what you have to say Um, in Chicago. Um, Let's go to something fun. This was fun, but let's go to get to know Mm -hmm. you a little bit better. Um, Mm -hmm. We have four Ps. Um, We took the marketing mix and we kind of had some fun with it. I'm going to go to Pandemic. Mm. Um, What was something fun or quirky that you started doing since the quarantine? Anything crazy or fun or interesting? Uh,
2: I mean, it's it's not crazy in general, but it, it was for me. Uh, I tried my hand at baking, which I know a lot of people did, (laughs) but for me, I've always cooked and I love to cook, um, which is much more art than science, but baking is a science and I've always been scared to death of it. And my wife (laughs) always did all the baking and I just, you know, like everybody else, I was just getting punchy and I had to try something different (laughs) and, you know, I ended up baking some pretty good bread and pretzels and
1: bagels
2: and... (laughs) I don't know. It was, it was kind of fun. And then my kids got into it. So uh, for me, that was a, that was a stretch, but it it turned out to be really fun.
1: Yeah. There there are positives. I mean, we have to look hard for them sometimes, but there were positives to this big disruption in our lives the last few years. That sounds like a good one that you um, learn a new skill. And then you've got your children to kind of do it as well. That's cool.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, everybody's tired. I'm sure of, of <laughs> talking about the pandemic and of course, it was way more negative than positive. But I think, you know, if we want to just be an optimistic society there on a personal level, there are many things, many byproducts. And one for me was, I spent more time with my kids than I ever would have gotten to because prior to 2020, I was traveling like crazy. And I was away a lot and I was missing a lot. And then suddenly, for two years, I was with them all the time. And for me, that was a, I mean, that was a gift, you know? And yeah. um, I mean, you know, of course, don't get me wrong. Our business struggled. And of course, all of the horrible things that happened, but right. uh, you can't dwell on that. And there's, there's, there's always positive things that you can look to. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I think there were quite a number like that.
1: Um, very good. Next P um, pastime um what is what are your favorite things to do when you have free time other than baking? and
2: uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you know other than uh, hanging with my family, which is always my favorite, photography is my um is my passion on the side. So I'm an avid weekend photographer, travel photographer. Um, so that's really one of my favorite things to do.
1: Awesome. Man, so exciting uh, to hear from you and get to know you a little bit. Um, I'm jealous, again, that I don't get to see you speak in either Nashville or Chicago. Um, How can people reach you? um, Are you active on LinkedIn? If people have questions or want to learn more, what what can they do? Uh,
2: Yeah, LinkedIn, um, I'm quite active. So if you just search David Paul, P-A-U-L-L with two L's, uh, I'll pop right up. Please do connect and um, send questions. uh, Tag me in relevant posts. I'll definitely jump in and comment and engage. Um, otherwise dialsmith.com is the website, David at dialsmith.com is the email. So, um, anything I could do to be helpful, uh, anytime people can reach out.
1: All right. Well, thank you for your time. It's been great getting to know you and, uh, look forward to what Brian gives me feedback on, uh, your presentation. Thank you.
2: That's great. Well, thank you. I enjoyed talking with you. Great time. All right. Thanks.
0: Joining me now is Susan Griffin, the principal and founder at Griffin and Skeggs Collaborative. Susan, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me. Very exciting.
0: Yeah. Um, you are going to be presenting at Insights Marketing Day this year. But before, I am. We, before <laughs> we jump into that, um, I took a little bit a look at your background. Can we get in a little details on that? Because you're not just a marketer, you have some experience in the market research industry as well.
3: I do. Um... So I can't tell you for how long because your listeners would do the math and, you know, then I couldn't let them live. But um, basically, I have been throughout my career involved in marketing um, as well as operations and and other things. But for a long period of time, I actually started out in, in the real solid market research world. Um, In Sample, Uh, I was an individual sales contributor to a company that at the time was called GMI. I sold Sample. Um, uh, Previously, I had been um, a commissioner of research, so I, I kind of understood the client side of the world, but then I sold Sample. And then for a long stretch of time, I was the chief marketing officer for an agency an online research agency at the time called Brain Juicer. I was there for nine years. And um, during that time I served on um, various industry bodies. I was the East Coast US representative for SMR for five years. I was on the Insights Council for the American Marketing Association. Um, way back in the day, I was a volunteer for at the time it was called MRA uh, okay. that then over the years morphed into uh, the Insights Association. So I, I, I took to heart something that was told to me really early on in my career, which is embed yourself in the local fabric of market research, because that's how you build your own brand, as well as building the brand of the company you work for. So in 2017, I left Brain Juicer, who now goes by the brand System One Group. And when I was contemplating what I was going to do with the rest of my career, I thought about what I did best. And I I kind of refer to my superpower as understanding what I call the dark arts of marketing. Um, okay. And lo and behold, when when I founded Griffin and Skeggs Collaborative with my my partner, and we're a marketing communications, marketing strategy and communications design firm, because of the reputation that I'd built in the industry, a lot of market research companies came to me and said, Can you help us with our brand? Gotcha. So that's what we've been doing. We, we certainly consult in marketing and communications design for uh, a lot of many different verticals, but just by happenstance, a lot of my clients and strategy have been in the market research area or analytics or these sort of adjacent areas. So that's me. Um,
0: That's great. Um, I don't think I've told this on the podcast before, but I kind of have a similar background. I started my first job out of college. I managed secondary research. And this is going to show a little bit of my age, but for a Yellow Pages company.
3: Okay, well, I'll go you one better. This is not on my resume. But I, I in my checkered past, um, when I got out of college, I was looking for a day job and i worked for at that time lewis harris associates i had no intention of getting into market research it was not an aspiration but i needed i needed some rent money and so i was doing door-to-door qualitative interviews in south boston and you know i mean we, we both we both you know, have that early immersion, you went on to become um, the the acolyte in, in uh, and then guru in research that you are today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and kudos to you and EMI4 um, in telecast. It's a great, it's a great resource. And quite entertaining too, which is hard. It's hard to do in market research.
0: We've tried to do the goal of saying, we want to have fun with this when we're not having fun, we're going to stop. So we try to, we we kind of do it for ourselves and have a little entertainment and fun. So
3: And you're five years into it. You told me earlier, that's amazing. That is amazing. So yeah. um, Somewhat of an accidental tourist in the, World of market research, but then I spent a good part of my career um, helping build uh, what became a very famous brand um, for a small company. And now that's the sort of things that um, our firm does. Uh, really helps brands figure out what their stories are and and how to tell them successfully to build build and grow their businesses. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I think that's a great segue into. Insights Marketing Day this year that you are speaking and your session is when building your brand, think like a builder. So with that, can you give us a preview of what you're going to be talking about?
3: Sure. You know, without giving away too much, um, I, I think that brands in market research far too often describe themselves in the context of the tools that they use, right? Right. Mm-hmm. so you know we do conjoint, we do qual, we do quants, we sell sample, we do data processing, do you want some right yep. as opposed to we solve these kinds of problems for clients, and they they use very undifferentiated uh terms to describe what what makes them what makes them stand out from from other people who also do qual quant segmentation you know the all the all the tools that only exist if they help clients solve a problem it's harder when you're in a business like yours which is somewhat of a commodity it's harder but there is still the need to articulate what you do in a way that, and shout out to a friend of mine, Mike Roderick, who also shouts out to um, a real leading light in the behavioral science world, Bob Cialdini. Um, He introduced me to the idea of making your brand accessible, memorable, and referable. And and those are the kinds of things that I'm going to talk about within the metaphor of, you know, there there are two kinds of builders. People who describe their tools and people who describe what that end product is going to be when they create a building for you. So that's the metaphor I use. I think I've already given away my session. Oh, (laughs) people can then go and you know, check your email right. while, I'm, while I'm babbling on. Well,
0: I'm a big believer in trying to give the solution. You have to I show the problem and show what the solution is. It doesn't matter what the toolbox is, whether it's, right. I'll use your example, your conjoint, your qual, your quant. Are you, what is the client's problem? And what is your, what is your solution for it? And it can't just be, so will you do qual and quant? No, what is it? What is the focus right. of that? Right.
3: And you can't use these sort of amorphous, overused terms like, well, what makes us different is we're focused on quality. Quality's table stakes. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if you're not delivering quality in whatever market research service you're providing, you might as well close up shop. Right. Um, Being customer centric. Again table stakes, you know, I mean, if you're not focused on your customer and what is going to help them grow their business, mm-hmm. you, you, you don't have, you don't have a role to play. Um, and I find it so fascinating that market research agencies who theoretically exist to help customers, their clients, Develop insights around their customer base that help them tell the story of their brands. Mm-hmm. Are such rubbish at telling their own stories? You know, I mean, it's fascinating yeah. to me, and and it, and it's really—I call it the dark arts of marketing. When you actually sit down with a client and you and you ask them to enumerate the characteristics that make them different. Enumerate how they stand out against competition, um, who they believe their competition to be. It's, it's often illuminating how I'm not coming up with radical ideas. I'm literally showing them their own reflection in a mirror and, and getting them to see ways in which they can tell their story that is accessible memorable and referable. And, you know, just a little bit around those three principles, you know, your brand has to be accessible. People have to understand immediately what your brand stands for, why you do what you do, you know, not what you do, but it's a Simon Sinek quote, you know, people will remember why you do what you do. And and that articulates really what you do. I, I, I watched that quote, but, um, and then, you know, memorable. It's got to be something, a story that is, that is remarkable in some way, right? Yep. Because when a client, there's a fascinating thing that another colleague of mine, Lucy Davison of Keen's mustard um, shared on LinkedIn about a month ago. And it's actually from, An Ehrenberg Bass Institute study from last year that basically says that 95% of your prospects are not in the market for your services at any given time. So, when they are in the market for your services, they have to remember that you're there. So, the marketer's task is really to constantly be reinforcing that message because today, your prospect may not be interested, but something may happen to them tomorrow that makes them interested. So your brand has to be memorable. And then the third thing is that your brand has to be referable. And what's fascinating to me is, you know, we, we talk about testimonials in this business, right? You know, uh-huh. hardest thing in the world to get, right? Oh, don't get me started. Um, yeah, right? um, But you can't possibly... I don't care how big a company you are, whether it's in market research or elsewhere, you can't possibly have enough disposable income, marketing budget to basically put your brand everywhere. You've got to make choices, you know, invest in pay to play, do you, you know, put your money in multiple directories? Do you, you know, do you exhibit it, it at every single conference? No, you can't. You can't possibly but right. what you want is for your brand story to be so accessible and memorable that other people will tell that story for you. Oh, you need you need a reliable sample company that's going to be able to deliver hard to reach audiences. Well, you need to go to EMI because I know these guys and mm-hmm. they're great, right? Yep. You want those testimonials that you can put on your website, but only so many people visit your website. You want them in proposals, but only so many people are actually asking you for a proposal. You want those referable, you know, those sort of um, ancillary brand storytellers Mm -hmm. to be telling, referring your brand in the stories that they tell. So that's kind of what I'm talking about. Um, and hopefully I'm gonna make it funny and fun. And I may even bring a hard hat, although I haven't been able to find one yet, but you know, we'll see those <laughs> people who show up on the day, will find out.
0: Well, you are speaking my language on this, that memorable, this is conversations in here. It's like, oh, we're this, okay. But how is that different from X, Y, and Z? What is making exactly. you different? And. I mean internally we have I think we've identified what makes us different is that we understand the entire sample industry. We do we do 10 years of research on research. We're constantly doing it. So we know the industry. We know what panels work best, which ones are more. We know the fluctuations too that are going on when there are mergers, acquisitions, changes to how they're managing a panel. We understand that and that's our big push. And, We've, we've really been pursuing that the last few years, but this was a, several years ago when I first started, it was a large conversation going in. How do you do this? Like, what is the big, what's, what's that key message that makes what is, makes us different from everybody else? And and yeah,
3: the big, and it's really important. It's because that's the only way, you know, understanding that narrative, Mm -hmm. the narrative is what what frames your brand the stories you tell are the things that articulate that narrative and then the storytelling really so, so many people focus on the storytelling bit yep. and they forget the other pieces and then they fall into that undifferentiated trap that right. that push you know forces you into a role where you're you're a commodity right right You know, it's like selling sugar to bakers. If I can get the sugar cheaper, I can, I can increase my profit margin making the cupcakes.
0: And honestly, (laughs) it feels, we talk about like how you're mentioning sugar and sample. We, our big message is sample is not a commodity. It's not. Panels are different. They're not all the same. They're not interchangeable (laughs) depending on how they manage it, how they recruit, their attitudes and behaviors of their panelists you're going to get different results. And that right. is our big message. So we fight that message of sample as a commodity on a daily basis.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And you've, uh, you've, you've got to be armed with all of the, um, the tools that help you articulate that, yep. you know, it, it's sometimes show don't tell it's, 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 you know, a brand can be visually memorable, but if it, doesn't really articulate what you stand for people remember you for the wrong reasons you know i mean it's it's a i call it a dark art because it is an art it's much of marketing is a science um but at the end of the day it's it it is it is an art that needs to be thought of in that way
0: Uh, oh i totally agree my two cents I totally agree. And when you mentioned the memorable, that reminded me years ago, a different boss I had. And this was before I was in the market research industry. It was, I was actually in a printing and a promotions company. And I managed- Oh my
3: God, another-, another I know. I, <laughs> I picked I some another, really good industries. Well, no, I mean, I share that. There was a point really all, early on in my career where I worked for a, I sold printing. So we, we've got to talk offline about our, our, our checkered pasts.
0: Well, I was the product manager for a dish for the distribution services product line. So getting the stuff in the warehouse out to the retail stores. So think of like an 18 tier or <laughs> Verizon store. They're all different, but they all need signage with every month or so it renews. I was selling it. And my goal was I had to be top of mind with our clients because no one changes because it's thousands hundreds of thousands of dollars to make a change in that and they're only changing if something's it's screwed up so bad so my whole marketing plan for that was staying top of mind and i only had to land four or five clients because they were five they were six seven figures each once i did
3: yeah. i'm like oh i hit I
0: you only got seven new clients I'm like yeah but i rate i went increased 10 million dollars
3: right you've got to understand the landscape in which your customers operate um, right. you know a tale um from my old brain Juicer days um brain landed a project a huge foundational research project with a company that was fueling their innovation and they were so excited and you know i mean it was a big mm-hmm. big dollar project And so they forecast the next year that they were going to do the same thing over again. And lo and behold, the people who were client-facing on that project failed to realize that this particular client had a three-year innovation cycle. First year, they would do deep foundational research. Mm -hmm. Second year, they they would iterate around the insights that were developed. Third year, they would introduce the innovation into the marketplace and clock how well it did against forecasting. So shock. Second year that, that, but it's because they didn't understand the client's landscape. Right. You know, you have to not only understand, I mean, so few market researchers that I've encountered in my, in my career, You know, they get a. We want to test three ads in five different markets, or we want to test new packs, or we want to do focus groups around this claim. And so few market researchers actually say, "Can you give me the context of the what? What is the business problem that this research is going to serve?"
0: Mm -hmm.
3: It's you know they don't stop dial it back and say, "Yeah, you know." Six focus groups um, in Chicago, you know, Philadelphia, and Florida. But what's ultimately, what purpose is this research going to serve? What decision is this? Are the outcomes of this research going to help people within your organization make? Because that that, ironically, that informs the way you structure the questionnaire. I mean, that context is everything.
0: Even the higher level up, what type of research you're doing? You may say, well, I think I need this. If it's a business problem, you're like, well, this can be answered this way. You might go from eight focus groups to one online survey or vice versa.
3: Exactly. exactly. Or you might say, have you ever asked a similar question in another study that was tangential to the purpose of that study? But actually now could be hugely valuable, in which case, go back and reference the research mm-hmm. you did before, because maybe you don't need to spend that money right, right now. I mean, but so so many market researchers are are afraid to to go there or don't want to turn down work or don't don't want to collaborate at that level with with a client. And that's, right. I think, that's I think where, um, where so many firms risk being commoditized. Even if a service, as you point out, sample is not a commodity. Yep. If you don't understand the context, that the operating context of a client, you can't anticipate, you can't be a partner. Right. And you know, that gives you the opportunity to be top of mind when you see. Something that you know is affecting your client's business circumstances, but it's it's not it's not relevant to a specific piece of business today. You at least demonstrate to your client that you're thinking about them.
0: Right. We we are big on consulting with our clients. Even that, it's not just oh, well, this is what you need. It's not giving oh, well, I would change this demo or that. It's uh, there are times like. I don't know if you actually need to do this type of study. What about this? Or even right. what are your business problems? Or, hey, I don't think this is the quite type of work. And there have been times where we have stepped back. Like, I don't think this is the correct thing. If this is, what's your business problem? And they're stating it. Like, I don't know if this is the correct way to go about it. And we will, like, I, we would recommend something else that doesn't bring us any money. But while you miss out on maybe that project, It increases your credibility so much and strengthens that relationship. It's a long-term investment because now they're like, all right, they really want to see us succeed. Yes. I'm going to go back to them. And it's not maybe a bid. It's like, Hey, this is what it is. I know you guys, you guys were up front with me. I see you guys as a partner and that's the best thing to be viewed as, as a partner versus a vendor.
3: So part of your brand story is partnership. Yeah. Fellowship,
0: you know, yeah, I have one more question here on this Uh-oh, before we get okay. into some fun stuff. Um, what advice can you give if you are a market research brand and you start to notice your competitors are starting to use your differentiation messaging?
3: Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, and it happens a, a lot. I, you know, my own personal experience with this certainly is um, the application of behavioral science, too. To research and arguably one of the first agencies to do the, to recognize the power of behavioral economics was brain juicer. And they really went out, you know, very forcefully in terms of trying to own that differentiation. And I think it, it worked for a long period of time, but then you did have people who, you know, read three chapters of Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow and purported to be experts in uh, behavioral science and began to embroider that on the surface of their brands. And it was tough because mm-hmm. you know we'd invested a lot in actually educating the 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 client side about the power of, of the framework of behavioral science. But I think when that kind of thing happens, when you see a brand, when you see other brands mimicking you, I mean, first of all, first mover advantage is, is you, you, you can never lose that as long as you keep reinforcing it again, right. keep making it memorable and referable that you guys were there first. Right. Um, you know, as something becomes mainstream, Versus that differentiation that, you know, we all long for Mm -hmm. it's, it's important that you keep building on it, that you keep, you know, you keep, you keep being top of mind as someone who's digging deeper and deeper and deeper into the differentiation. And again, it's harder to do in certain cases. You know, I have a client who, has this incredible differentiator of being a consultative researcher with a focus on microculturalism. Interesting, but, and and what her what her brand differentiation is, you know, <laughs> lots of lots of researchers of color get tapped to do research with. Different demographics: be they African American, mm-hmm. be they Hispanic. I mean, you've seen it yep. in, in quotes, right? But her differentiation is: she says, "No, not all individuals within a demographic." This is uh, this is a woman uh, named Robin Elong. Her her company is is called Lightbeam Communications. And what she says is, not all Hispanics behave like every other Hispanic. Not all black um, but consumers behave like all other black consumers. And you have to understand the microcultural influences that shape the way they are going to hear your brand promise. And right. she's she's what she does, which is phenomenal. um and this was a transformation that she she's done over the last couple of years, she writes a lot, you know, she cultivates the opportunity to continue to be seen as top of mind, owning a differentiation that, that literally is, is quite novel, but she invests a lot in continuing to be seen as maybe not the only voice, but the first voice articulating this brand promise of her own. So you got to invest.
0: Right. Well, just along that, I mean, if people don't think about that, I just think back to the most two years ago to the election. Think about that. And if you mentioned Latinos, ones in Florida are very different from ones, say, in New York or California. That, that just showed that in their voting habits. I mean, right yes. there. They thought it was one big group. It's not.
3: Yeah. I mean, this whole idea of segmenting, um, uh, you know, I, I truly believe that uh, humans defy segmentation um, <laughs> or at least not with that blunt object of of race or right. age or, you know, you name the demographic. I think compare me to someone who might look the way I look in terms of, my demographic, i totally different. And I'm going to behave differently. Uh-huh. Um, it, whether it's in how I vote, you know, the products that I consume, the, um, the entertainment that I seek. Um, so you're right. And, and I'm kudos to Robin and Lightbeam Communication. Um, she's, she's uh, been a leader in, uh, QRCA she, as a qualitative moderator but she morphed her her brand promise and her narrative mm-hmm. to this very differentiated um characteristic set of characteristics so it happens that your brand differentiation becomes um more mainstream and you just have to keep investing in making sure people understand that you were there first
0: That is great advice. Now that we've gone through the insights marketing today stuff, do you want to have a little fun? We got a couple questions to get to know you a little better.
3: Oh my God, of course. I'm totally into fun.
0: All right. Uh, We'll do a couple of our normal four P's here. And pandemic is going to be one. This is when we started when COVID hit. Brian likes to talk about, who unfortunately isn't here today, talk about how he got into online marble racing because right around when COVID hit in march through the summer there were no sports and he is a sports junkie and he went a little stir crazy and found marble racing on youtube and he still watches it to this day uh for me what i the quirky thing we started since the pandemic was that we play restaurant at my house so i have a five and a seven year old um, when COVID hit we couldn't go to restaurants so Once in about once a quarter, we will have them write a menu. My wife will play, will play waitress. I will play chef. They will get dressed up and they will come into the house, the front door. Like it is a, the entrance to a restaurant, they'll get seated at the table. They'll order, we'll cook it and bring it out. That is kind of what we've done since then. And we still do it once in a while to this day. So with that being said, what is something fun or quirky you started doing since COVID hit?
3: Well, yeah, I've been into fun and quirky pre-pandemic. So, you know, the pandemic wasn't necessarily um, my get wild moment. Um, But uh, during the pandemic, as you can tell, I'm very, very much of a devotee of the the power of story. Mm -hmm. And I had been working remotely collaborating I mean, part of Griffin and Skegg's collaborative is that we bring in people who complement our core competencies. And I've been working with um, a, a firm called Iambic um, Creative in the UK. Uh, we've been working for a mutual client all remotely because of the pandemic. I've never met them. Okay. But Zoom is how I've communicated with Simon Aerosmith, who's uh, one of the founders. We both Um, have a love of theater, that's sort of in our blood and in our background. Um, But we also determined that we think very much alike around the power of story, narrative story and storytelling. And we read an article um, that appeared in Green Book that said the buzzword of 2021 is going to be storytelling. And we scratched our heads and we said, Storytelling. Wasn't that done and dusted? I mean, like, what we determined was brands and particularly market research agencies, for the reasons we talked yep. about, didn't think of story and storytelling as a utility. They thought of it as a nice to have. They they thought about the how as mm-hmm. opposed to the development of the you new know, what it what is your story? Is it the hero's journey? Is it um, overcoming obstacles? You know, that classic sort of Joseph Campbell uh, artifact, uh, architecture of story. Yep. Um, So we decided to do a podcast because why not? We were late to the party. We're only in season one. You're in season (laughs) five. I have such podcast envy right now. I can't even tell you. Um, But what we decided to do was not to interview business people who used storytelling, but rather to interview really interesting people in the arts, in academia, in science, who somehow used story as to bring meaning to their work. Now we have interviewed some people who arguably are business people, but we've interviewed authors. And you know, we interviewed a guy who wrote a book called Cool, which is the history of air conditioning in America. It's the story of an everyday thing. Yep. But the, it, at the end of each one of our conversations, we draw the dotted line from marketers in terms of how they can use story, narrative story and storytelling to tell their own brand stories. So we're 12 episodes in. Um, we are, are, we've interviewed TV producers, uh, as I said, authors, academics, data scientists, um, a seventeen-time Grammy-nominated songwriter, and you know what we try to do is have fun, but make it inspirational yep. for our listeners. So that's that was my sort of. It wasn't quirky, I suppose, but um, it's my labor of love. We're we're into recording for season two, which we hope will commence in early October. So that was my pandemic.
0: No, right. that's great, and. We're going to put a link to that podcast in the show notes here. So hopefully terrific. So, it's
3: story, story conversations blog is where you can learn all about it. And it links you to the places where you can uh, subscribe and listen.
0: Awesome. And one more here, Pastime. time. What is your favorite thing to do when you have some free time?
3: Okay. So I've referenced theater and, and the performing arts. Um, I am immensely proud to say that I am a drama mama um, in that I have an amazing daughter. We, my my husband and I have an amazing daughter. Her name is Emily Skeggs. She, um, she's been on Broadway in a musical called Fun Home that won the Tony the year before Hamilton and was nominated for a Tony herself at a very early age. She's gone on to do film and TV um, and her most her current movie, which is um, actually it's streaming in a lot of places right now, but it'll start streaming on Hulu sometime later this month. It's called dinner in America. It's a punk rock romantic comedy. It's not for the faint of heart. I would urge people to go look at the trailer and um it, it it's 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 punk what can i say but it tells the story of two mis- two misfits who find each other and against all odds recognize the parts of their their core self that are worthy and uh, worthy of love so um go 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 to dinner in america.com that's my, that's my guilty pleasure, um, you know, seeing my daughter perform in anything. Um, and uh, I hope that the world will come to love my guilty pleasure as much as I do. I and, You know, I, I, But, you know, what's interesting yeah. is Wayward Creators is my side hustle. It's where right. I help incubate new works of, of performance, WaywardCreators.com, You can check it out. When I was in, in my daughter's high school year, she went to the fame school. Um, there would be these incredible kids who would come to the house. And I used to call it Miss Susan's home for wayward creatives. <laughs> and it's such a tough, cre- being a creative is such a tough business. Mm-hmm. Very few of the people who start out as creatives actually make it to that you know, that top echelon, but that you top one percent, yeah. Yeah, you can't ever give up. And they're worthy of incubation support and um you know it's 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 just it's awesome. it's awe inspiring to me how true creatives have tenacity to stick with it and and you know keep creating. Um and I just happened to choose theater because I had a really good example of living right in my apartment. So anyways, <laughs> that that's my guilty pleasure.
0: That, my is, pastime. that is awesome. That sounds like a movie for my wife and I, maybe not, a, maybe not, not family movie really, night, but maybe. No, my wife no, <laughs> no,
3: no. I was going to say about restaurant restaurant days, you know, hopefully the kids don't say, um, can it be vegan? And I'm, uh, um, I'm, I'm allergic to poppy seeds and peanuts. So, and you know, is, can you possibly make it keto? I mean, that, that's what I'm finding in my family. You say
0: that that is my normal life. So oh, I am the cook at my house. So my wife is paleo because grains and stuff cause inflammation. So she, right. it's not by choice. She's, we've done years and years of trial and error to get to this point. So I am normally making two, possibly three dinners a night, three different versions. My kids and I eat somewhat n- normal. And then there's stuff for my wife. There are times we're eating the same thing, but then there's often times we're not. Like if it's spaghetti right. night, she's not having the regular spaghetti like the rest of us. So
3: Right, right, yeah, right. Well, God bless you. This is a restaurant. This is the versatility of your restaurant for restaurants nights is is admirable. Yeah. So
0: Susan, thank you for joining us. This has been awesome. Before we go, where can people find you? Where can they get some more information?
3: So, griffinandskegs.com. It's griffin, G R I F F I N A N D, skegs, S K E G G S dot com. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, You can find me on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, but I don't think people will be you know, wandering the streets trying to find me that way. You can also find me in the Berkshires in Western Massachusetts, but again, um, you, won't, you won't track me by GPS. But griffinandskegs.com is where you can see more about our work and some of the clients that we've had the privilege of serving. And you can see me at story conversation stop log.
0: Awesome. Thank you very much for this.
3: Thank you, Brian. This has been great. Um, will I see you in Chicago?
0: I will be there. I
3: I'm going to be in and out
0: real quick, getting around dad duties. So,
3: Oh, there you go. There you go. And, and kitchen duties and kitchen duties. Yeah. I don't
0: know what they're going to do. So we
3: did, we defy segmentation.
0: That's right.
3: right. Yep. There you go. All right, Brian, be well. Thank you. And uh, keep keep, uh, keeping on with what you're doing.
1: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.